0: and welcome to my daily podcast. This is something I do that goes out every day with my email newsletter via the Kaka for paying subscribers in which I look at geopolitics, the global economy and Aotearoa's local economy with a particular focus on housing and affordability, climate change in action and child poverty reduction. One thing I like to look at is what's happening with our infrastructure spending in part because that's what drives our ability to solve the housing affordability issue with extra housing supply and also to solve our climate change in action problems. Essentially, we need to re-engineer our cities so that it's easier for people to get around on uh, bikes and cycling and walking and also to live in homes that are hopefully carbon zero over the long run, warm, dry healthy. So we're talking mostly medium density housing. And to do all of that, the first thing you need to do is get your water right. It's the piece of infrastructure that is the crucial first step before you're able to develop anything. Speak to any developer, anyone who is thinking about opening up greenfields or brownfields. The first thing they try to work out is, Have we got big enough pipes, enough pipes for the three waters? And if there is a downpour, what's going to happen to all that water? And when there's a drought, will there be enough water for everyone who's living here? And when they all decide to go to the toilet at once, is it going to go somewhere good? So watch what's happening with water when you want to understand whether we are building enough homes and Reengineering our cities to solve these issues of climate change, inaction, housing unaffordability and child poverty reduction. Because in my view, most of these issues, our social issues, our health issues, justice, child poverty, are about housing. Housing tenure, housing quality, housing security, housing unaffordability. Remember, Aotearoa has the worst housing affordability in the world, and not just to buy a house, but we have the highest share of people on low incomes who are spending the most in dealing with rent. So if we're going to solve these three issues, we need to solve the infrastructure problem. Why is it that Aotearoa has been so bad at building enough infrastructure or maintaining its own infrastructure over the last 30 years? And why have we been so unprepared for the last 10 to 20 years of very fast migration? Well, it's worth stepping back and looking at where we were in the early 90s through to the early 2000s. What were we expecting as a society, as a bunch of politicians and bureaucrats in both central government and in councils? And what sort of funding arrangements did we set up in the 1990s and early 2000s? to deal with whatever our population was going to be. In essence, StatsNZ and the government of the day, and this was conventional thinking, thought New Zealand was a stagnant, stable population. It was an ageing population and wasn't very popular with a lot of migrants. A lot of the regular migrants coming from Europe and in particular the UK had stopped coming. In the 1980s and early 1990s, we had high unemployment. It wasn't a very attractive place and there weren't easy jobs. And there were many other places in the world people could go to. So, we planned for pretty much flat populations. And when you do infrastructure and when you do your planning about where suburbs will be, where the big pipes will be, where you'll build your water treatment plants, whether or not you've got the right pipes to deal with floods... And how regular and big the floods will be, it really depends on what you expect for to happen over the next 20 to 30 years. And on the whole, New Zealand's bureaucrats, politicians, statisticians assumed that we would have very low net migration and then an ageing population, which would mean our population would be broadly flat, maybe up a little bit. And that we'd invested an awful lot on infrastructure through the... 50s, 60s, 70s and into the early 80s and in particular through Think Big and the assumption was we had plenty of infrastructure to deal with a flat population. So the main aim was to stop building infrastructure, it was to stop doing Think Big, it was to stop putting dams um, through people's backyards or motorways that uh, removed all sorts of houses, it was to stop development. And the main aim of politicians and voters was to reduce the size of government, which had become overbearing and interfering, particularly under Rob Muldoon. And that's what powered the deregulation and the changes through the late 1980s that culminated in 1989 with reform of our local government sector from dozens and dozens of authorities down to about 65 or so. And also we saw... From 2000 onwards, those assumptions about population growth blown out of the water by a succession of governments, both national-led and uh, labour-led, which powered economic growth by welcoming in migrants. It made sense to start with, because we had skill shortages, and the assumption was, was that someone was going to come here to work and get a residence visa. And at that point, we had a residency visa planning range which was that we wouldn't award more than about 50,000 visas per year. And actually for most of that period through the last 20 years or so, we usually didn't get to that quota. But the difference was we encouraged lots of temporary work visa uh, awards. And for a lot of people who are backpackers, people who are students, people here on various temporary visas were able to stay and to effectively increase the population of the country which, of course, was measured every census, and we could see it. We could see it in our crowded roads, in our bursting public transport, in our hospitals being overwhelmed, in our schools with waiting lists. By 2019, we could see we had a massive problem with not enough infrastructure to deal with population growth, which hadn't been flat for the last decade or so. It had actually been 1.6% per annum. That made us amongst the fastest-growing, if not the fastest-growing, developed economy in the world in terms of population growth. The problem is, of course, we welcomed everyone in, but we hadn't built it. You're supposed to build it, and then they come. In New Zealand, they came, and then we thought, oh, we better build something. And that's the fundamental issue at play in the the area of three waters. Now, I've just spent seven minutes explaining the background to infrastructure funding and why it's so, so important. And you may have heard uh, the news of the last few days about Three Waters and, of course, heard the debates of the last couple of years about Three Waters. Let's step back a bit and try to explain why the government wanted to do Three Waters, whether it was a good idea, and what might happen next. Three Waters is, in essence, an attempt to solve this infrastructure problem, but to do it without having a proper conversation with voters and with ratepayers in which those voters and ratepayers agree to a certain level of population growth and agree to the necessary level of taxation, of user charges and of public debt to be able to uh, handle the extra people coming in. Neither major political party wants to have that conversation because it's really tough. It's easy when you're a politician to promise tax cuts to suggest that we can have it all. We can have the economic growth. We can have the balanced budgets. We can have the rising house prices. And we can have it all without having to invest in our infrastructure. It's a type of magical thinking which has captured both sides of politics for the last 20 or 30 years and which is driven largely by an orthodoxy and a view inside uh, Treasury uh, which I think is stuck in a 1991 mindset which says New Zealand's government shouldn't borrow and can't borrow to fund infrastructure because that's something Rob Muldoon did And, and unfortunately hasn't taken into account the huge demand there is for wealthy people in not just our country but overseas, increasingly wealthy people a huge appetite to invest in government debt because it's the lowest risk, most guaranteed type of debt. And when you're very old and very rich, the last thing you want to do is risk your money in somewhere risky and the safest form of investment for the increasingly wealthy and very unequal structure of Our global economy is for everyone to put their money into government debt. That's why for much of the last 10 years we've had trillions of dollars worth of government bonds trading with interest rates or yields below 0%. Now that's not the case at the moment of course because of rising inflation but um, certainly there is still huge demand for our bonds. The problem actually is that government are not borrowing enough from those people who want to lend it to those Uh, organisations, governments, bodies that have the power to tax. So uh, the government here should, in theory, to solve its infrastructure issue, simply increase its borrowing. And at many points in the last 10 years, it's been able to borrow at 1% to 3%. And to pay for that, uh, and remember the interest cost as a percentage of GDP is less than a quarter what it was in the early 1990s because of low interest rates and because debt relative to our GDP is incredibly low relative to everyone else. So if you think to yourself when you buy a house and you've got a mortgage and you're paying 20% of your disposable income on servicing the debt, the mortgage on the house that you've just bought, well just think of New Zealand government debt our, current, our government is currently spending 1% of our national disposable income on servicing our national debt. 1%. Now that is not a, a problem. And we should be using the, our balance sheet to fund infrastructure which will last 50 and 100 years and be serviced and paid for by future taxpayers who want to live here and benefit from that infrastructure. But we have an orthodoxy led by Treasury, which says that debt must, government debt must remain low, because New Zealand is almost always about to go bankrupt, and, um, and also the size of government must be kept low. It's led to a consensus, unadvertised but very real, within our government structures, that says the size of government and in particular government tax revenues should be around about 30% of GDP in the long run. To the extent that just a few weeks ago, again, Grant Robertson, a Labour finance minister, argued in Parliament to the opposition that he was not addicted to debt and addicted to spending because he was keeping tax as a share of revenue around about 30% of GDP. Also a few months ago, he's Grant Robertson uh, detailed out loud what the government's debt limit is, or what he'd like it to be, around about 30% of GDP. Now, there are different measures of the type of debt, but in essence, both National and Labour have said they want debt to to remain below or around 20 to 30% of GDP, and the size of tax to be no greater than around about 30% of GDP. All of this means that we have an effective set of fiscal restraints on our politicians, on our governments, both central and local, which says we will never increase our uh, tax revenues or our debt beyond 30% of GDP. It's called the 30-30 fiscal rule. And it suits politicians of both frames because it, it restricts them from introducing new taxes and it also restricts them from taking on new debts. Now, you may wonder, what's so bad about the government taking on debt? Why is everyone so worried about this? Well, there is a generation of politicians and bureaucrats who, understandably, in the late 80s and early 90s, were very worried about it because interest rates then were very high and because we borrowed in foreign currency and we didn't have a floating currency. We had a fixed one, which meant that debt crises very quickly became life-threatening events for our economy. That's not the case anymore because we borrow in our own currency, we borrow at fixed interest rates for a long period of time, and we also have a floating currency, which means that any shocks to our economy are cushioned by the effects of that floating currency, particularly when we're not having to service the government debt in foreign currencies, we service it in New Zealand dollars. It is the pension funds, uh, those overseas who are lending to us, who are taking the exchange rate and the interest rate risk. And remember, too, we have plenty of sources of our own funds that we didn't have in the 80s and early 90s in the form of KiwiSaver funds (laughs) and, of course, the government-owned entities, NZ Super, ACC and the others. All of this means is that um, the risks involved in borrowing are much less than what either Treasury thinks they are and what the politicians and the voters think they are. There's another reason why voters and politicians like low debt. It essentially acts as a disciplinary force on politicians to stop them from um, letting their ambitions run free and build up the size of government. It effectively starves the beast of government. It's a theory which came out during the Reagan era. He was the one who said... Uh, The solution is not to come from the government. The problem is the government. And the the ideology is that you need to continually strive to stop government from getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, that hasn't happened in New Zealand for 30 years. Our tax revenues to GDP have been pretty solid, around about 30% of GDP. And our net debt is actually at 30% of GDP at the moment, which, by the way, is about a third the levels of other countries who have similar credit ratings to us. So again, why this fear about taking on debt onto the Crown's balance sheet and using it to invest in infrastructure for future generations? Well, there's a couple of reasons, and actually, like just about everything, in my view, it all comes back down to whether or not we tax capital gains on land price appreciation, and also it comes down to... uh, whether we invest enough in infrastructure to deal with our population growth. So um, back in the late 1980s, we reformed our tax system, uh, put in place a very broad base and relatively low-rate system for income taxes and the same for GST, although it subsequently rose from 10% to 15% in a couple of jumps. That was very effective, broad base, low low-rate, hard-to-avoid, fair, simple. There was supposed to be a third element in that trifecta of broad base and low-rate, a tax on capital gains. This is in part to avoid uh, an unfairness that cropped up when the government removed in the mid-1980s a particular subsidy for pension savings. Back in those days, uh, it it was encouraged by the government that you save for your pensions to the point where... It actually made sense to instead of buying another rental property putting more money into your pension fund because it wasn't that money that was going in there wasn't taxed before it went in and often it wasn't taxed while it was in it was only taxed after it came out uh, the government decided to create a level playing field I well, they thought it was a level playing field um, by removing that tax break on pensions it seemed to make sense you were giving lots of government money to people already quite rich uh, but in the process they left in place, um, or in fact finally removed, a land tax and then did not tax capital gains. We are of course the only country in the OECD that does not tax capital gains. We've had three elections about this and failed every time to bring in a capital gains tax and our current Prime Minister has ruled out a capital gains tax in her political lifetime. So uh, we're at a point now where our economy is structured from a household point of view, and increasingly from a business point of view, to take advantage of that hole in our tax system, which means you can make leveraged tax-free capital gains on the value of residential land. And you may ask, so what on earth has this come to do with infrastructure spending and interest rates and government debt? Remember now that whenever you invest in infrastructure that will help the building of houses – and that means putting down pipes and water and public transport and wires and playing fields and hospitals and schools and all of that sort of stuff, you are effectively opening up extra supply of residential land to meet increased demand for residential land. So even if it's accidentally on purpose, you are able to stop infrastructure development to open up new residential land, be it brownfields or greenfields, then if you own residential land and at the same time there are increases to demand for residential land from the likes of more people, lower interest rates, then suddenly the value of your residential land increases immediately without any justification or earning, it just increases because there is a lack of supply of residential land to meet that extra demand. So because we have underinvested in infrastructure for 30 years, and because we keep failing to come up with new solutions to build for infrastructure for future population growth, the value of residential land rises. Now if you own already own residential land and you've leveraged up on it, and of course you're not paying tax on it, you are making an awful lot of money. And why would you want to change that? Remember too, that whenever the government increases debt, well, the council increases debt, particularly in a large way, then that will increase interest rates for everyone, all other things being equal. So if you're being completely ruthless and completely self-interested, you would ensure that the government has very, very low debts, that it continues to have very low taxes, which it does for income taxes, that there continues to be no tax on capital gains, and that because you've managed to keep taxes low and keep government debt low, you've also managed to keep infrastructure investment in new residential land supply, or the infrastructure that's needed for it, you have created a perfect storm for rises in residential land values. All you need then is to throw the match of higher migration into the mix and take advantage of lower interest rates as many... uh, investors in all sorts of assets have done over the last 20 or 30 years. So uh, where does Three Waters come into this? Well, remember we have these political constraints that both parties have effectively agreed on the quiet not to increase tax beyond 30% of GDP and not to increase government debt beyond 30% of GDP. In fact, National would actually like it to be a lot lower, although they haven't said yet what their current position is. In the past, they have said that like it around about 15% of GDP. So, in effect, both major parties have agreed they will not change this fiscal consensus. That means it's very hard to bring in new taxes unless you have a switch, which means that there is no net increase in tax to revenue. You can't uh, bring in a capital gains tax. Um, go and ask any uh, Labour opposition... Uh, in all of the last elections except for 2020, when Labour decided not to even propose a capital gains tax at the election. And you'll see that it's very hard to introduce new taxes or to tax capital. Politically hard. Voters have been convinced they can have it all. There are politicians and voters who believe in magical thinking, that you can have the population growth and the rising land prices. You can also have the infrastructure but somehow you don't have to pay the tax or have the higher debt to pay for it. Unfortunately, this has been encouraged by the likes of Treasury, which over the last uh, five or six years has suggested all sorts of uh, um, uh, pseudo-Crown entities which are off the Crown's formal balance sheet and which keep ownership of assets in broadly public hands, but take the decision-making away about prices and debt from politicians directly, and which effectively use a pseudo-government guarantee to keep the cost of borrowing relatively low, albeit at a slightly higher price than regular vanilla government debt. That's why we've seen the introduction of the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act, which is designed to allow private bond issues to fund a lot of council infrastructure. It's been in place for four years. It has never been used because it is something that bond markets don't actually want. They want vanilla government bonds. And so what we've had is continued starvation of capital investment. To give you an idea how big the starvation is, the Infrastructure Commission has done a proper survey of what our level of infrastructure deficit is from underinvestment over the last 30 years. It's about $100 billion dollars. Currently, the government is planning to spend $61.7 billion over the next um, decade or so. So you've already got a $40 billion shortage there. But remember, this is the deficit from past underinvestment. We don't have a steady state here. Now, it's true that our population hasn't grown much in the last two years before covid But um, certainly anyone going anywhere near an airport at the moment or trying to buy an airline ticket will know there is enormous demand to come to New Zealand and travel around New Zealand. And the government over the last three or four months has progressively loosened the migration controls uh, because of plenty of requests from employers and others to um, allow a lot more foreign uh, workers, sometimes on temporary visas, sometimes on permanent visas, into the country. So, there is going to be population growth. So, not only do we have to fill the hole from the last 30 years, we have to continue to invest for future population growth. Otherwise, a lot of these issues around land prices, congestion, um, uh, problems with burnout in hospitals, schools, will be continued uh, for uh, years to come. In fact, probably get worse. So we need to invest 100 billion to fix the last 30 years and then we need to invest another 100 billion according to the infrastructure commission to keep up with population growth of around about 0.7% per year got to remember though that 0.7% per year is based on a stats nz forecast of population growth for the next 20 or 30 years which makes exactly the same mistake that it made in the late 90s early 2000s which is to assume that we have relatively low migration. It actually assumes 25,000 net per year. And remember, we were doing eighty to 100,000 net per year in the few years before COVID. And that uh, because of an aging population, again, we're not going to need too much more infrastructure to deal with the population we have. So if that's the case you'd want to make sure that both central and local government and voters and taxpayers and ratepayers agree on what they want their population growth to be. Surely there'd be some sort of debate or some sort of agreement, some sort of cross-party, bipartisan, central and local government thing uh, in which everyone agrees, Okay, we're going to manage our migration. We're obviously not going to manage the population population that is not what you do but manage the migration so that we have population growth of around of less than 1% per year ad infinitum and you can do that with various means it's not easy and you certainly couldn't do it in a micro adjusted way month by month but you know over a period of 5 or 10 years you could do it unfortunately the government has just removed its planning range for uh, residency visas and has has said that it does not have a overall target or plan and has gone out of its way to say it does not have a population plan. Turns out these things are quite controversial for all sorts of reasons. Just ask the Green Party from a few years ago when they suggested a 1% target and had to drop it within a couple of weeks. Um, So there's no agreement about what our population growth should be. The forecasts are based on 0.75% growth ad infinitum. Even with that, we are not filling the infrastructure hole or preparing for the next 30 years of population growth, let alone deal with our housing and affordability, climate change in action, and child poverty reduction. (laughs) So something's got to be done. So how do you do it when you're not allowed to increase taxes or increase debt? Well, you can do some very fancy footwork involving off-balance sheet vehicles, and that's what Three Waters is. Effectively, the government is legislating to take water assets off the councils and to take the council's debt attached to those assets off the councils, put them into brand new off-balance sheet vehicles, which are allowed to charge for water, and which, in theory, will create some economies of scale which make it cheaper to produce the water infrastructure and allow borrowing off those new uh, off Balance sheet vehicles allow borrowing of up to about 12 billion, according to the forecasts from the Department of Internal Affairs. And that debt, continually rolled over along with money that comes in from charges, would in theory be able to pay for upwards of $180 billion worth of investment over the next 20 to 30 years. That all makes sense, doesn't it? If you've got a political constraint, why not create a fudge? Uh, which gets around it. Well, yes, on the face of it, that is one way to do it. But in effect, you are doing a very major thing without telling the public why you're doing it. And then people start to wonder so, why are you doing it? And unfortunately, in my view, some people noticed the words co governance sprinkled throughout the Three Waters proposals and thought, aha! This is a grand plan to take these assets back and give them to iwi, and for iwi to take money from water charges. And this, in effect, is an asset grab engineered from the center and a centralization grab which takes control away from locals and gives it to a shadowy elite of iwi. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is wrong. And anyone who has any spent any time dealing with infrastructure issues, dealing with environment issues, consenting issues, local government, and is actually engaged with local communities, iwi, and um, you know the conventional communities, knows that co-governance is nothing to be afraid of. In fact, in many cases, it's going to make everyone's lives easier and better. And if you want to. Talk to some people who have actually done it and understand it. I've included a link to a full opinion piece from Christopher Finlayson, who is a national minister for treaty negotiations. So, this is a guy from the centre right, a cabinet minister in John Key and Bill English's governments, who says co governance is nothing to be afraid of. And he's not the only one in the conventional centre right of politics to believe this. If you talk to most people in councils, both in the staffing side and in the political side, who have been there for any length of time, they will tell you that co governance is nothing to be afraid of. But it is a really useful tool for dog whistling up support from those who don't understand it and who fear that there will be a shift of assets without their approval, and understandably, fear that before they know it, these shadowy bodies will start imposing water charges on them and taking on debt that is going to cause all sorts of grief for everyone when it all goes pear-shaped. And that is a fair criticism, that the lack of accountability between voters, general election voters, and council voters, so ratepayers who vote, is much worse under this new structure in which there are committees, committees, that are appointed of iwi and councils who then uh, um, construct the boards of four new water authorities, which are the four off-balance sheet vehicles to raise the money and do the investment. Now, we've just had an election, a series of local government elections, in which Three Waters was, in effect, a referendum issue. And a whole bunch of mayors and councillors were voted in on promises to not do three waters. Now, some of those promises were about co-governance. Some of them were about a lack of accountability. Certainly, the broad push was, we don't like the centralization plan. We're not quite sure why you're doing it. And uh, you, we don't want you to take away our stuff. And there's also a side angle here, which is, we don't want you to give our good stuff to our next-door neighbours, who didn't invest in their own good stuff over the years. Uh, And uh, part of the issue here is that, of course, various councils have tried and failed um, to introduce water charges and water meters over the years, and in effect, only those places where the central government forced it actually brought in charges. So we've got the Auckland Council, uh, or councils, which were formed into the so-called super city under government legislation from a national government, which created water care, which brought in water charges. So that was forced from the centre. You have the Todonga Council, which has eventually brought in water charges and metres, but again, is one of those ones where the government has had to put in its own commissioners uh, on top of the council. And there was actually no elections in Todonga this year because they have commissioners. Uh, you can go to the likes of Kapiti Coast, which did bring in water metres and charges, but the council and mayor that did it didn't last through the next elections they were booted out and if you're looking for a sense of how controversial water charges are just have a look through the transcripts and the uh, news reporting of various elections uh, council elections over the last couple of decades and the likes of Christchurch and Hamilton where it becomes very quickly an emotive issue that um, politicians want to run a mile from so in effect these new uh, unaccountable shadowy uh, vehicles Uh, would be imposing water charges and bringing in debt, which we all hope is uh, uh, sensible and not too extreme, um, but which the ratings agencies have clearly stated they believe is in effect guaranteed by the central government. So what's the point? If you're going to borrow money with a government guarantee, why not just borrow money with vanilla conventional bonds? That's where you get into the Treasury's argument in which they say, uh, actually, uh, we don't trust the local government to spend the money well. And our actual main goal in life is to restrict the size of government, not to increase it. We don't want to raise money and then give it to councils to spend on new parks and convention centres and the likes. We don't trust them. They're a bunch of bozos. And local government says, um, they don't trust us And they keep telling us to do things and not giving us money to do it. We don't trust them either. And so you have this horrible broken relationship between local and central government where uh, in New Zealand local government has very little uh, ability or power to raise money apart from rates and certainly not enough to pay for what they've got. They're also restricted uh, through the group borrowing facility, the local government funding agency, from using their own balance sheets to borrow to do it in part because the LGFA, which is run by Treasury, says that, um, in particular, Auckland Council can't do anything that would lower its credit rating because it would lead to a lower sovereign credit rating. And again, remember, the whole aim of government is to ensure interest rates are low so that asset prices keep rising. And um, so what you end up with is a broken relationship between central and local government that means that we don't invest in infrastructure. Unfortunately, Three Waters was done in a way and with a lack of transparency, which meant people looked into the vacuum and saw co-governance and have effectively revolted against it. So we've now got National Act saying they would repeal uh, Three Waters as soon as they got in. We have a bunch of councils now after the elections who are opposed to it. Now the news this week, there we go, it took 36 minutes to get, <laughs> to get to the news. Bernard Perry's the lead again. So the news this week is that uh, two new mayors, Wayne Brown from Auckland and Phil Major from Christchurch, have come together and uh, re an alternative to Three Waters, which is based on the uh, group of rebel councils, um, the so-called L4G um rebel councils uh, who had proposed a very watered-down version of Three Waters where co-governance was not compulsory and which a version of the Crown Infrastructure Partners structure, which was behind the ult- a successful ultra-band, u- ultra-fast broadband rollout, which involved a billion dollars' worth of government subsidies, by the way, and not to mention the effective subsidisation of using virtual slave contract temporary migrant workers to build it, but let's let's move on past that. Um, So the idea is that instead of having separate off-balance sheet vehicles that local government can't control, the assets would remain in the hands of local government, but it would have access to crown infrastructure partners, uh, equity investments, and the ability to raise debt. And uh, that's how it would all be funded, and uh, these, the, the Three Waters style consolidation to four different entities would not happen, and you would have a, a more organic uh, process in which councils were the ones deciding it, not central government. So in effect, it's a very, very watered down version of the Three Waters proposal before the government. However, it could have been a useful thing for the government to grasp onto as it was sinking politically it was in effect a type of off-ramp which was built for the government to get off Three Waters with some sort of uh, dignity and some sort of um, sense of responding to the public's will. So of course at the moment we have um, the Three Waters legislation going through Parliament. We've had a first reading and we've had submissions to the Select Committee considering the first reading and within the next couple of weeks we'll get a report back from the Select Committee after the first reading and the submissions to the select committee, in which usually, particularly for controversial bits of legislation where it's clear after submissions that there's a bunch of stuff wrong with it, often you'll see the legislation tweaked and reconfigured and bits added and bits taken away to soften the blow and to make it more acceptable to everyone and hopefully also create some better law that doesn't get tripped up in the courts later on and actually is better for everyone. So there is an opportunity for the government, in theory here, to back down or to soften Three Waters in various ways. So we thought, when we got this proposal from the new mayors yesterday, that there was an opportunity for the government to take the off-ramp, to use this as a a delicate and uh, dignified way to back down, to have a U-turn to essentially uh, look in the mirrors, check that there there was no one about to sideswipe them and do a U-turn, and then take the off-ramp. That's not what happened. So what you are about to hear is an exchange in the Parliamentary Press Gallery uh, uh, news conference after Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's weekly um, Cabinet meeting, she and Local Government Minister Naniama Mahuta are in the press conference. I was there and asked various questions. And we, of course, wanted to know, is the government going to back down? Is this proposed alternative okay with the government? So let's hear what they said.
1: Um, Would you consider, um, and this is for both of you, the proposal that these mayors have put forward, given it might address those issues of ownership and influence um, Mm. that are at the crux of a lot of the opposition? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, both new mayors incoming mayors of Auckland and Christchurch have recognized that the status quo is untenable uh, and they both also are worried as we are about the ongoing challenges for ratepayers and the potential for increased rates uh, certainly during this time where there are extenuous uh, cost of living challenges of many kinds I'm really pleased that they've signaled an opportunity to commence a dialogue and we'll consider uh, certainly uh, matters that they have raised some of the some of the areas we've traversed already, but the most important thing is that the dialogue uh, on the, this particular challenge remains open. And I'm, uh, as I say, I've met uh, with Mayor Brown. Uh, he didn't foreshadow those particular uh, issues when I met with him, but he did foreshadow that we need to remain engaged on this pretty challenging issue. These have been consistent lines of opposition, the, the perceived or otherwise lack of ownership, the, the lack of influence. <laughs> is something that would be on the table as you like, try to find a way through significant
2: opposition mm. to this yeah. well, we've, we've said, look, we're at a juncture now where we've been receiving public feedback, and of course we've said we're open to making refinements and changes that improve the reforms here that are just so necessary, but our bottom line is we don't want to change those matters which are focused on keeping cost of living in check without reform, ratepayers will see increases in their water bills. So we don't want to change the fundamentals of these reforms that are designed to make sure we don't see exponential increases.
1: The assets split from the balance sheets of the council. Correct, and that so is this key. Does
2: not, that would not meet that threshold in this, in this But look, I case. don't want to shut down Thank what you. is, I think, in good faith an offer here for us to keep working together because I think the, minute the um, mayors, they do have uh, a, a focus on making sure that their ratepayers don't experience that spike in cost of living. We've got the same focus. So let's see how we can keep working together. This proposal wouldn't meet f- some of the fundamental bottom lines in the three waters. We don't think we'd both rather not traverse a, a negotiation in this manner, but actually talk directly. But so long as at its heart, we're all focused on making sure ratepayers don't experience those large projected increases, then we have common ground.
1: Mayor, Mayor, Brown, Mayor, Mayor Brown, Brown, in our conversation, Mayor Brown was mindful because I did map out the legislative timetable that the Select Committee continues mm. to make its determinations based on a public submission process, and I urged him to think about you know, how the Select Committee are responding to many of the issues that, that the councils have raised, and uh, let's wait and see with uh, what recommendations they can back with
2: also. Possible
1: and willing would you be to move away from the the stated and specific model that's making its way through Parliament at the moment?
2: Yeah, again, as I've said, we are open to making changes that improve um, the proposals, um, but we've, we, we say that. With a complete and utter focus on making sure uh, that those changes don't undermine the fundamental principle, which is making sure we don't see an increase in costs for ratepayers beyond what is currently projected, which for many areas is dire.
0: Yes, for day, yeah, you, but Premier Minister, you just said that you um, that balance sheet separation is a
2: fundamental part of keeping costs costs down.
0: proposal today is to not have the balance sheet, yeah, to have a co-investment which
2: They've made a range of suggestions, and I think again they've made them in good faith. I'd rather us just have conversations with the mayors directly rather than traversing it Without here. About
0: their proposals, oh, saying I've, that there has to be balance sheet separation. I've said that
2: those things which m- ensure we're able to keep uh, in check what are um, uh, proposed to be significant cost of ex- escalations for ratepayers need to be a, a focus. Uh, for us as a government and I hope for councils and for everything I've heard so far, that is a shared priority. But look again, we have been open to those refinements, but we are going to keep that at the heart of what we're doing. Can you guarantee that the Three waters legislation will pass its third reading before the election? Uh, well of course we're on trajectory for, uh, there are a range of different bills, but of course we are on trajectory for that and again I'd say here, it would feel irresponsible to me if we stood by as a government knowing what we know about what is coming for ratepayers and not do anything. I, I don't think in good conscience we can do that. That doesn't mean we can't continue to make changes and refinements to improve the proposals. Yeah,
1: you said you're on the trajectory for it, but given the latest yep. majority, I mean, you control the order paper and what gets through when. Yep. So can you give an ironclad guarantee that that will happen?
2: Well, that's what the scheduling uh, uh,
1: allows us to do, yes. Can, can, I, can, I, can I just make a comment? is that the most uh, the important part, juncture that we're at is the select committee mm. so the the select committee is in good faith listening to the range of views coming through the submission process. They have not yet finished Mm. their task. Mm. We have already foreshadowed as a government where there are improvements to the legislation to improve the workability uh, of the legislation and be responsive in key areas that don't upset the overall balance of objectives for water reform. We're very open to receiving uh, those recommendations and we look forward to their report. Submissions to the Select Committee have proposed pretty fundamental changes to the legislation, like mm-hmm. perhaps increasing the number of water entities um, that, mm-hmm. that you'll form. Are you open-minded to altering the legislation to, to do something like increasing the water? Are you able to be that open-minded? This in, this in part comes to the, the, the question around balance sheet separation and getting economies of scale well-pitched in order to achieve that. Uh, and I'll, perhaps I'll just round off on the, finishing the response uh, in relation to that because a co-investment fund would assume that both the government and ratepayers would be responsible for funding that solution. And again, while we can't go into the details, because that would require another conversation with those particular councils. That would have to be a fundamental consideration about whether or not it would actually achieve balance sheet separation mm. to have a financially sustainable way to invest in
2: infrastructure. Mm.
1: Mm. No change the number of entities that you oh, Again, just
2: pours, pours <laughs> again. we've said in good faith that we want the select committee process to finish, that we're open to refinements, but it's hard making sure that we don't see significant cost escalation. Let's let the Select Committee finish its process. One, f- one thing I would just perhaps, out of, I, I saw that the Mayor's made some reference to the fact that a 7% increase for Auckland's water and wastewater services um, was uh, a theoretical scenario. Just to clarify, Watercare have already issued um, those proposed increases, so... According to Watercare, it is not theoretical that ratepayers are facing those increases.
1: So, so, yeah.
0: so there we have it. The Prime Minister saying, in as many words, no, talk to the hand. This proposal does not match with our bottom lines, as she said, which are balance sheet separation and co governance. The Prime Minister decided not to take the off ramp. And uh, that's where we are now. We may yet see a U-turn, but it's going to be even uglier now, and um, there might be a few side-swipings going on. Uh, we'll know in about a week, a week and a half, when the, the report comes back from the select committee, whether there's been any softening of the proposal. You obviously heard in there the Prime Minister and Nanaima Hutu being at pains to say, yes, they've got an open mind and they are listening closely, and you never know, there might be some changes that get in there. But as you also heard, and I pushed the Prime Minister, as did um, uh, Jane Patterson from RNZ uh, and Thomas Coghlan from the New Zealand Herald, it's clear that they have a very strong view that the basic structure of Three Waters should not change, and they are carrying on with it. They're going to try and brazen out the backlash against Three Waters. We'll see how that turns out because the government is obviously behind in the polls depending on how you measure it and which poll you take they're a good uh, the the red block of uh, labor and green are at most 42 43 percent in the blue block of national and act uh, closer to 46 47 percent and that means uh, depending on how things go it's quite possible you could see a a majority national act government that doesn't need any sort of cross-party support to govern. So Labour is in trouble, and I am surprised that they have not used this off-ramp to try and reduce some of the political pain from the grounds twelve style backlash against uh, co-governance. Interestingly, just in the last week or so, we've also received the results of a Future for Local Government review of local government financing and governance. This was set up a couple of years ago now by uh, Nanaya Mahuta, the local government minister. In effect, it was designed as a consultation to see, is the funding arrangements and the governance structures of councils and the relationship with the central government, are they okay? Uh, In a way, Three Waters has put the cart very much before the horse. They should have worked out whether the arrangements and the relationship were okay before they started doing Three Waters. Whatever the case, that has only just come back after a couple of delays. And it essentially says, yes, the relationship is broken and it would be quite nice if the councils had some more fundraising uh, ability and were able to share in a co-investment fund. And uh, also they'd quite like... Uh, 16-year-old voters and four-year electoral terms. So uh, I made the point of asking Nanaya Mahuta what she thought of this uh, horse um, before the cart and then the cart before the horse. Uh, The the future of local government uh, draft came back on Friday in which... Many of the submitters said the relationship between local government and central government was broken and put forward various suggestions for improvement, including um, uh, co-investment in infrastructure. Um, What's your view on some of those um, Uh, Proposals and this idea that the relationship's broken?
1: Well, a couple of things. Firstly, the Future for Local Government panel is an independent panel and has canvassed widely both local government, sector, business and community in order to come up with its considerations. On the issue of a co-investment fund, one of the key issues that came out of the annual conference this year was that the biggest challenge uh, facing uh, councils was was the issue of climate change. And in order to respond to issues of adaptation, and potentially manage retreat, they were looking for solutions that was a, that were a bit more innovative and looking at the long-term challenge to support councils to respond to those types of matters. It's not a surprise to see that recommendation in the report, but again, can I stress, this is an independent report uh, from the panel. It has been canvassed widely, and uh, they'll continue to seek submissions right up until February next year. So we're, we're asking people to engage with them. So
0: you actually think of that code,
1: I think when you look around the world, uh, resilient uh, responses involve central and local government working alongside community to address some pretty significant challenges around adaptation. So it's not a surprise to see a model like that referred to in the report.
0: So there we have it, Nanaya Mahutadea saying that uh, she was listening. Well, um, that is my background uh uh, piece, hopefully, to explain what Three Waters was all about, uh, why Three Waters is being pursued by the government, why it chose not to accept the alternative proposal from the mayors, despite the uh, local council election results, and the fundamental reasons why we are not investing enough of in our infrastructure, and the risk that we make the same mistakes we've done over the last twenty or thirty years. Which is to underinvest in infrastructure uh, for our cities, for our pipes, for our houses, for our roads, for our public transport at a time when we have quite strong population growth and we have issues around housing affordability, climate change in action, and child poverty. The other thing to know is that if we continued growing our economy, and in particular our population, at the 1.6% we saw for the previous 10 years before COVID, we would have a population by 2100 of 17 million people. Pipes and roads and houses that are being built now will still be around in 2100. That is less than 80 years away. Uh, I know lots of people, and I have lived in houses that are older than 80 years. There are railways. There are definitely pipes that are (laughs) out there older than 80 years Are we ready for a population of 17 million people? Nowhere near it. And we're not having the debates about how big the population should be, what our tax rates should be, how big our debt is, to make it sensible. We're just stumbling on, led by magical thinking. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my podcast for the kaka, going out to paying subscribers, who have asked me to open this up for the broad public to listen to and to um, understand what's going on so i've done that khaki